Okay. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and tonight we'll take a look at verses 4 through 8. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. In chapter 4, Paul illustrates the principle of salvation by grace through faith by means of a man who was respected as perhaps the greatest person of the Old Testament era. And what Paul's point is, is that even if Father Abraham wasn't saved by works, or faith plus works, then nobody was saved by works or faith plus works. According to a national and international religion report dated 823 of 93, 88% of Catholics and a majority of Presbyterian and Methodist, Methodist evangelizers, meaning those who actively try to share their faith, believe that, and I quote now, if people are generally good or do enough good things for others during their lives, they will earn a place in heaven. 88%. In a related survey of 7,000 Protestant youths from many different denominations, they were asked whether they agreed with the following statements. First, the way to be accepted by God is to try to sincerely live a good life. More than 60% agreed, and this is Protestant youth, more than 60% agreed, quote, God is satisfied if a person lives the best life he can. Almost 70% agreed that the main emphasis of the gospel is on God's rules for right living. Well, Martin Luther would have strongly disagreed with those statements. In one of his gentler comments, or moments, he, he said, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. So with apologies to those 88%, the 70%, and the 60%, that's not what the Bible says. The one that probably disturbs me as, as much as any of the rest of them are the youth. The youth are being brought up in churches that don't teach them that salvation is not by works. Salvation is not by being good. And salvation is not by being good plus faith. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the message of this portion of the book of Romans. And now Abraham is going to be the illustration, the primary illustration. We'll be introduced to a second person tonight that's a sub-illustration. But we can't get there on our own. Let's look back at what we take, have taken a look at over the last two weeks. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, What shall we say that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Or what can we learn from the example of Abraham, to put it another way? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Speaking of verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 4, John Calvin, in his commentary on Romans, sees Paul using a simple, logical syllogism. First, if Abraham was justified by works, he can boast in his own merit. Major premise, minor premise, but he has no reason for boasting before God. In conclusion, therefore, he is not justified before God by works. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul gives scriptural support for his understanding of Abraham's justification and explains the phrase, 
but not before God that he's used in verse 2 by citing the teaching of the Hebrew Scriptures about Abraham's justification. And the text that he references is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, which is Hebrews chapter 15, verse 6. And we spent a great deal of time on that, or a significant period of time on that last week, because that's going to be a verse that will uh, color our interpretation of the rest of this chapter. We must remember that at this point in history, the point at which the Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans, legend had overtaken fact when it came to Father Abraham. And Abraham was regarded by the rabbis as either one who had not sinned at all and therefore did not need justification as mere mortals do, or one who had worked his way into justification. So this is the world that Paul is living in, and he has to use Scripture to validate his point. And he uses the Hebrew Scriptures to do that. In fact, when Paul says, what does the Scripture say, I, I think the emphasis really is on uh, the word Scripture. And Paul's saying, let's go back and see what the Scripture says. Not what tradition says, not what the Mishnah says, not what the prayer of Manasseh said, but what does the Scripture say? Or what does Moses say about this? Genesis 15.6 is the only passage in the narrative regarding Abraham in Genesis which speaks of Abraham's faith as such, and of righteousness as, a, as something imputed by God. So I think it's understandable that Paul is going to use this verse to validate the point that he's making here. Paul is having to cut through the culture of his day. The culture of his day was that a person is saved by works. In fact, if you spend much time talking with your Jewish friends about spiritual things, you will find, I think, that a great deal of them are not arguing that they believe in Yahweh as per Father Abraham. They understand that they're a sinner that is in need of justification, that there's nothing that they can do to earn that, and, and they want to follow the pattern of Abraham in faith, but they just don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was, was the Messiah. You're not going to find very many people. I've never run across anybody like that. What we run across is people who either believe, and it's amazing because this is one of the greatest forms of racism being committed by a group of people that has been one of the victims, one of the greatest victims of racism that's ever been. They may think that they're being saved because they're Jewish, racially, or they think they're being saved by being good, by working their way to heaven. The situation that Paul was dealing with when it came to the Jew in the first century, is not altogether different from the situation that we deal with in evangelism of Jews today. And in fact, based upon the statistics that I cited you just a little while ago, I think that the culture that Paul was living in, that was a faith plus works or a works rather than faith culture in order to earn favor with God, is very much the culture that we live in today. We're sheltered. I mean, we really are. We've grown up in a tradition, most of us have grown up in a very strong Bible teaching tradition. Now, some came to, the, came to this later on in life, but for most, we grew up in a culture where it was just understood that salvation was by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, and that works weren't part of the deal. But you need to understand that a great number of the people that you will be witnessing to don't have that as anywhere close to their presupposition. 
the issue with a lot of people is not whether God exists. With some people it is, and some people you have to start in evangelism with that, all the way back to that apologetic. But there are a great deal, a great many people who feel like they're attempting to be good enough to earn favor with God. I've witnessed to people like that, and I'm sure that you've given the gospel to people like that as well. So there are different starting points for the gospel. On Mars Hill, Paul started with the existence of God. In Acts chapter 16, he starts simply with, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But there may be different starting points. There's only one gospel. And this, the essence of the gospel is faith, but there may be a different starting point for different folks. And if, it is, if, that's, if those statistics are accurate, then for a great number of people, we need to be starting with the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and you can't do anything to earn your salvation. You know one of the greatest arguments that I can, and I mean argument in a good way, that I would use to evangelize a Jewish friend is the exact same one that Paul is demonstrating for us in Romans chapter 4. You don't need to be intimidated. There's, there's no intimidation necessary. Do what the apostle Paul did. If you, if you have an opening to do that, I don't believe you can shove the word of God down someone's throat. I also don't believe we should be distracted by things like what about the Holocaust, what about the Crusades, and things that will be typically thrown at you. I would say, what about Father Abraham? How do you believe that Abraham was saved? And when they tell you, because they very may well, that he was saved by being a good person, then you need to be able to go back to the Hebrew scriptures, not necessarily reading Hebrew, because they probably don't either. But go, I, would, I would avoid calling it the Old Testament with a Jewish friend because that's unnecessarily creating a side issue that it could be argued over. Go back to the Hebrew Scriptures into the book of Genesis, the first book of Moses, and say, how, what does it say there about how Abraham was justified? And so I would use the exact same argument that Paul does. You want to know what the one of the principles of application, one of the ways that we can apply this very theological passage is, is to take it as a model for evangelism. Go back to Father Abraham. He was a very well-respected figure. So what Paul is saying is, is, is I, I say that Abraham was justified before God by faith. He's also saying, I'm not the first person to say that. Moses was. And so when you're speaking to a Jewish friend, if they say, well, where do you get that? That Abraham was justified by faith in love, in love, Say, well, that's what Moses said. And then take them back to the Hebrew scriptures. Remember, it's got to be done in love. You can speak the truth, but if you don't speak it in love, it makes the person that's speaking that truth repugnant and obnoxious. And it also makes the truth being spoken somewhat repugnant. You can say the right thing in a hateful way, and you're not getting anywhere with people. That's why Paul says, speak the truth in love, especially when you're evangelizing. You're not going to be able to beat somebody over the head with a baseball bat and get anywhere. You may think you won the argument. You may go back to coffee or lunch the next day and say, how you just tore that person up. But you didn't really do any good in terms of truly presenting them with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's where we left off last week. And now this week, in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, we begin... And we'll take a look at one section, and I, th and I believe the section goes through verse 8, so we're going to cover all those verses tonight. Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned or counted as a favor, but rather as what is due. But to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And he says in verse 7, quoting Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul draws two theological consequences from what's said about Abraham's justification in Genesis 15, 6. That's why we spent a little time there last week, because we needed to understand what's going on in Genesis before we'll be able to fully grasp the rest of this chapter. But what he's saying, he's saying first that works have no part in justification. Did you see? He's pretty plain about that in 4.4 4 through 4.8. And second, is this is so because God's justifying verdict is not earned, but freely given. I think Paul's reasoning, in verses 4 and 5 especially, is pretty straightforward, and let me put it this way. If, if I went to work at the Ben Franklin when I was a sophomore in high school, and my job that is agreed upon ahead of time is to work three, say, two, two hours, I believe it was, every evening cleaning the store, and for that I would receive, I think it was $1. fifty, but let me round it up to do the math, say $2 an hour. Two hours, $2 an hour, that's what I was hired to do. I did it, and at the end of the pay period, the people that owned the Ben Franklin paid me for doing two hours of work. That's 10 hours per week, $2. They paid me $20. Now, was that an act of grace on their part? No. It may have been an act of grace, so we don't get too sidetracked. It may have been an act of grace that they gave me the job. Okay, granted to that. And so therefore, whenever I got my paycheck, I, st I still said thank you for it. But it was not an act of grace for them to pay me because I had worked, as we had agreed, for that money. Anybody that's worked, and that's everybody in this room, understands the same principle. If someone was to hold it back, you know, hold, hold the paycheck back, and you went and there was no paycheck in your slot... And you went up, and, and so I, I just noticed, sir, that there's no paycheck in my slot this week. And they said, well, yeah, you need to come ask me for it. I mean, it's an act of grace on my part. At least, at least you can do is ask me. You'd be offended by that, wouldn't you? Because you shouldn't even have to ask for it. That's a contractual thing. Now, granted, again, they may have been grace, graceful to you in giving you the job in the first place. But it's contractual. That's what Paul means. Now, to the one who works... His wage is not reckoned or counting as a favor. In the Greek, that word is grace. It's not counted as grace. But it's counted what's owed you. But we know that salvation is by grace. So Paul is, is putting us on the horns of a dilemma here. If salvation's by grace, and he's already made that clear, not only here, but in other writings as well, and we're working for it, then it can't be by grace, can it? Again, back to our illustration of two people that come to God, one with empty hands and one with maybe hands that aren't so empty. The empty hands of faith, and then faith plus. If, if God accepted both faith and faith plus, then the one who brought faith plus would have an ability to brag before God, because he brought more than this other person. But the reason that no one can brag before God is because both all have to come with empty hands of faith. Because if I bring something... 
then I do have something to boast about because God owed me. You see what Paul's argument is? It's pretty simple. Anybody that's worked would understand that it's not an act of grace on your employer's part to pay you. Matter of fact, in most states, I guess it would be against the law not to pay you because it's a contractual agreement. In verse 5, though, Paul draws a fairly strong contrast, but to the one who does not work. I don't mean to sound exasperated, but how much more clear does Paul have to make this? I don't mean to sound exasperated, but how can people miss this? I'll tell you how they miss it. And I, and I speak of those 88%, the 70%, and the 60% that those surveys spoke to. They miss it because they never get into the text itself. This is the danger. Listen, listen very, very carefully. This is the danger in having a Bible that either sits in your car all week and you only open it when you come to church on Sunday morning or sits on your coffee table for years and it's never opened. There's been so much that God has graciously done so that we would have a Bible in English. Not just one Bible in English, but many very fine translations in English. Matter of fact, you can go all the way from an extreme paraphrase to a real literal translation and pick whichever one you want in between. I prefer New American Standard. That's my personal preference. If you have something else, feel free. If you like New King James, I think that's a fine translation as well. Because it's a little bit more literal than, say, something like the New International Version. But the NIV is a fine translation, too. But it doesn't do any good if it's never opened. And you need to be just like the Bereans and to, to look at the Word of God yourself. Now, I'm not trying to talk myself out of a job. Somebody came to me one time and says, the Holy Spirit's the teacher. We don't need you. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, I'm dead serious. And it was a little meaner than that, actually. <laughs> and I said, well, where did you, you know, where did you get that from? You know, we got it from the Scriptures. Well, where do you get the idea of a pastor teacher or even a teacher from? Well, we get that from the Scriptures. So we had an interesting conversation. But I'm not trying to talk myself out of a job in, in teaching you. But I, I have no problem at all if when this session is over, if you go back and, and reread what's in here. And if you have questions to ask me about them. By the way, just as, as an aside, I, I know that this was a very, very busy week for me. I know several of you called and left email messages that you had specific questions that you needed answered. If I didn't get to you, please don't be offended. Talk to me about it tonight. I, 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 you probably just slipped through the cracks. So I'd be happy to answer any questions. But make sure you also take a look at your own scriptures. That would cut out the 88%, the 70%, and the 60% we talked about before, because it's really clear. There's no way that you can both hold to what Paul says in Romans and to a theology of salvation by works or works plus. I mean, some people try to slip works in there. I know God did his part, but I've got to do my part. Isn't that the American spirit, right? I mean, we've we got to pull our weight. Not this time. Not this time. This might be the only time in your life you ever exhibit some humility, but this is one time when you can't pull your weight. You can't do it. That's why there's a contrast here. But to the one who does not work, but, another strong contrast, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Again, how much more clear can he make it? And I want you to watch what he's doing. To his original Jewish readers and Gentiles too, who also revered Father Abraham, at least a large number of them did. Look at, look at, the phrase that he uses when he's 
when he's bringing up Abraham as the illustration of justification by faith. Did you catch it? But the one who does not work but believes in him who justified the ungodly. This, this is a reference actually back to Abraham and everyone else as well. But he's lumping Abraham in with the rest of us. Just like he did in Romans 3.23 when he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And like he did back in Romans 3, verse 9, where he says, All are under sin. That all includes Father Abraham. That all includes Mother Teresa. That all includes Princess Diana. That all includes Billy Graham. It, it includes everyone. doesn't matter how good they are. Now, I'm not arguing against goodness. I'm not arguing against works. In fact, in the post-Reformation period, works got kind of a bad name. Work almost became a four-letter word because we were so, I say we in, in terms of the post-Reformation tradition, we were so intent on not allowing works to creep into the presentation of the gospel that even to mention the word work in Christian circles almost became a bad thing. But work's not a bad thing for the believer, just as long as it takes place after salvation, not before, and you understand it's not going to get you to heaven. We don't work to get to heaven. We work because we're expressing our love and adoration to God for, for providing the whole cost. We don't work to pay him back either, because we can never begin to do that. We work because we love him. So work is not a bad name. But to the one who does not work, and he's talking about for justification, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned or counted or imputed as righteousness. That God acts toward his creatures graciously, without compensation or necessity, is one of Paul's most non-negotiable theological axioms. He uses it here to show that the faith gained by righteousness for Abraham was a faith that excluded works. If you teach the young folks in our children's department, please, please stress this. That salvation is by grace. It's a gift. It's by means of faith. And it's apart from works. The reason I say to stress that is so many times with children, we, we want to, we, and it's right, we punish bad behavior and we reward good behavior. And so the idea of grace, salvation, may be a bit foreign to them. Make sure they understand that there's nothing that they can do to earn their eternal life. Again, for many of us, this really comes across as a no-brainer, but in, in the face of the dominant theology of the time, the dominant Jewish theology, this was a very bold assertion that the Apostle Paul is making here. Now, in verse 6, which actually verses 6 through 8 are all a continuation of verse 5. In the New American Standard, it has a comma after the word righteousness. In verse 5, that's, that's a legitimate punctuation mark, although there was no punctuation in the original. It's an implied comma. And so we need to go ahead and take a look at verses 6 through 8 tonight as well because it completes the sentence. Even though it's a different verse, Paul is, is making a point by bringing in another Old Testament a character, a second Old Testament figure who was revered, not quite as much as Father Abraham, but extremely respected. But while we looked at something like two, two issues, one, one was a quotation from the Mishnah two weeks ago and also the prayer of Manasseh that implied that Abraham was sinless, 
The person that Paul brings up now as a as a sub illustration, if I can make up a word, nobody really thinks this guy was sinless. Great, yes. Greatest king Israel ever had or ever will have until the reign of Jesus Christ himself. Yes, incredible warrior. Yes, my son's named after him. I love this guy. But nobody, either then or now, would have pretended that this next one was sinless, would they? In fact, some people have a real hard time with David. Some people can't, just can't buy the fact that, that David could murder someone and still go to heaven. That he could commit adultery and, and still go to heaven but he certainly did. Did he get away with it? Of course not. He paid the price terribly, an incredible discipline for that. But he brings up David, a person who, like Abraham, was very well respected. But now nobody's going to think David was totally sinless. He uses, then, David in a quotation from a psalm that David wrote, Psalm 32, to further tighten his case for justification as a grace gift and not a result of works. It's a common, it was a common practice in Paul's time amongst the rabbis to validate their view from more than one section of the Hebrew scriptures. In this case, Paul uses first the Torah, a quotation from Genesis, to make his case about Abraham, and following what I believe was the, the customary hermeneutic and, and expository method of his day, he's going to pull an example from another portion of the Old Testament, particularly in this case the writings, or some commentaries believe the prophets and the writings. But he's pulling two different sets of, if I may, case law out. You know, two different cases, not just one, in order to make his point. Abraham from the Torah and David from the writings. Uh, what Paul quotes David as saying here is, Blessed are those who have, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That word take into account is, all, is the same word that Paul has used several times now that we've been translating reckon or impute. The first two verses of Psalm 32 are quoted here by Paul because of this, the presence of this key word, reckon. There was a second, and I don't mean to, to confuse you, I'm, try, I'm trying to help, but there was a second method of the interpretation of the rabbis that Paul is probably using here as well. One was to take examples from different parts of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. A second one was when a word, a very important theological word was used in one verse or another verse. Then that word may be, you may take one verse that has the word reckon in it, like Genesis 15:6. Now Paul's going to take another verse that has that same word reckon in it, and he's going to pull that into the equation as well. So not only is he taking an example from two different parts of the Hebrew Scriptures, he's tying those two together because they have the same word in it. And that word is reckon, the last word that's in uh, verse 8 of Romans chapter 4. Oh, by the way, that's a practice that's still used today in many theological circles, to be able to search the Scriptures for certain key words and see what the Scriptures say about them. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it can be a rough thing when we take... when we 
rip verses from their context just because it has a similar word and the word can be used in a different way. A great example is the word salvation or save. That word can be used in many different contexts. Sometimes the context for that word is just a physical deliverance. Other times the context of that word is a rescue from immaturity to maturity, like James, I believe, uses the word. And other times it's to rescue us from a state of eternal damnation to one of eternal life. So you have to to see the context. And sometimes you'll see good sermons that pull the same word out. Other times it can be real shaky because they didn't determine the context. But that's what Paul's doing here, but he's doing it right. He's not doing it wrong. Psalm 32 gives the other side of the coin when it comes to reckoning or imputing. David here pronounces blessed the one who does not have sin reckoned or imputed against him. Now I want you to listen very, very closely in the last few minutes that we have together tonight. Paul is saying, for all intents and purposes, Paul is saying, blessed is the one who has righteousness reckoned. That's justification. Paul's saying that's the one who's blessed. Now, he doesn't use the word blessed, but to parallel from what David's going to do in Paul's quotation of David, he's saying the one who's on the right track, the one who's received eternal life, the one who's blessed, is the one who has righteousness imputed. And we've defined justification that way, haven't we? What David is saying, and Paul is saying through David, is is slightly different, but I believe it's the other side of the same coin. David is saying in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one who does not have sin imputed. I want you to see the two sides of the coin now. In Paul's teaching, he's saying, Blessed is the one who does have righteousness imputed. David is saying in Psalm 32, blessed is the one who does not have sin imputed. Do you see the difference in what's going on? But it is two sides of the same coin that Paul is calling justification. And he's pulling that in 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 verse 8. Paul is making it clear here that the forgiveness of sins is a basic component of justification. It's not all of justification, but it is included in justification. What they'll teach you in a theology theology class, in seminary, or in, in a Bible college, is that justification is not simply the forgiveness of sins, but it includes the forgiveness of sins. Justification is normally defined as the legal imputation of righteousness to the believing sinner. The legal imputation of righteousness to the believing sinner. So justification is not limited to the subtraction of sin. It's also the addition of righteousness. But let me say it another way. It's not limited to the addition of righteousness. It also includes the subtraction of sin. Because those of you who are fairly well-versed in theology, and that's the great percentage of you here tonight, you probably already understood that justification means that God is declaring someone righteous. That it's not simply subtraction, it is addition. You've heard that before. Remember, there was a a phrase that went around in Christian circles in the first part of the 1900s that became very popular, and and that was that justification should be defined as, just as if I had never sinned. Well, that's a very poor way 
to define justification. Justification is addition. It's the addition of righteousness. But we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in this case because what Paul does by bringing up Psalm 32 is he's also telling us that it includes the forgiveness of sins and the fact that sins are not imputed to you. So again, you see the two sides of the same coin. If you do, then you'll see why Paul brought this in. When a person is justified, God pronounces him acquitted in advance of the final judgment. When you are justified, it's at that moment that God declares you not guilty. He declares you not guilty for, for among other reasons. The fact that your, his righteousness or righteousness that's identical with his is imputed to you and your sins have been forgiven. Two sides to the same coin that is called theologically justification. The main point here is that forgiveness granted and experienced was the result not of human works but of divine grace. In this respect, both Abraham and David have something in common. Both are the recipients of God's sovereign, unearned favor. I'm not going to take the time to do it tonight, because when we finish 1 Peter, our study of 1 Peter on Sunday mornings, and that should be only, I think we said two or three lessons from now, something like that. It's my purpose for the rest of the year, to begin a study of selected psalms and selected theological topics that we learn in the psalms. One of those theological topics will be included in a study of Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 in conjunction with the New Testament teaching about confession and forgiveness of sin. So I would prefer to, to, to not spend a lot of time on Psalm 32 tonight. We'll, we will spend a significant period of time on it on a different day, on Sunday mornings in the fall. But understand that in just in a very brief overview, in Psalm 32, David is extremely joyful over the fact that he's been forgiven. The context of that verse or that, that book is probably the identical context to Psalm 51, which, by the way, Paul has already referred to in chapter 3, verse 4. If that's the case, if, if the context, both being Bathsheba's sin, is the same for Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, Paul has already alluded to that historical episode twice now. It's, it's an allusion. It's not a direct quotation, but it's an allusion to it. David certainly knew that he didn't deserve to have his sin forgiven from Bathsheba. Everybody that's ever read that account in the Old Testament should understand that David didn't deserve that. Remember what happens when Nathan comes and confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel. And he tells him this parable about a rich person taking the poor man's sheep. And you remember what David does when it comes to an analysis of that story. David doesn't know it's a parable, but when it comes to analysis of that story, he pronounces his own sentence. You remember what it was? That man should die. And Nathan says, you're the man. David had pronounced a legitimate sentence upon himself. The Mosaic Law had David two ways. 
First, for the adultery, he could be stoned, and for the murder. And we can say Joab did it. We can say the, the enemy of Israel did it. No, David did it. He put that man in a position where he would die. David deserved to die. If there was anybody in the Old Testament that understood grace, it was David. And so what, what Paul is doing in this portion of Scripture, he's drawing on two very well-known Old Testament figures, both of whom were the recipients of grace. He's using Abraham for the positive side of the coin, saying that Abraham did not deserve to have righteousness imputed to him. And he's using David for the other side. We might call it the negative side of the coin, if you, but we're not being negative about it. But the side of the coin that says David did not deserve for his sin not to be imputed to him. That's Paul's main point that he makes by quoting these verses. Now, in conclusion, or in, the, in these last moments, let me make one point of observation. David, and then Paul, by quoting David, calls blessed the one whose sins have been forgiven. That's the person who's blessed. Again, please look at verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. That's the one who's been blessed, the one whose sins have been forgiven. Look carefully at the text. Sometimes if we look carefully at the text, our theology might be challenged. Look closely. The one who's blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, implying a category of persons who is not blessed because their sins haven't been forgiven. Just because God judged the sins of the world on the cross does not mean that the sins of the world have been forgiven. They haven't. The penalty's been paid, but far too many people don't appropriate that on a personal basis. I had a lady that came to church one day, came very often, and at the end of the service one day she was very upset, in tears, not upset with me, but just I, I think she was just upset. And she said, from what you teach about the atonement, I'm understanding that to say that since Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross, then all have been forgiven. And she said, I don't need to trust God for that. My sins have been forgiven. And I said, you're missing the point. You haven't appropriated that gift for yourself. The way I believe it should be put theologically is as follows. Judgment occurred at the cross. Forgiveness occurs at the moment of faith in Christ. If an individual dies without trusting Christ for salvation... He remains, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and as Jesus himself says in, in, in John, as Paul talks about in Thessalonians as well, he remains dead in his trespasses and sins. What a tragedy to have the price paid, but never utilized. So again, in this section of Scripture, Paul is using Abraham as the primary illustration of one who has been justified by grace through faith apart from works. And now tonight he has, has indicated to us a person who is another well-known figure in Jewish history, one who nobody would confuse as sinless, and uses them as the illustration of the forgiveness of sin by grace. We don't deserve to have our sins forgiven in the same way that Abraham didn't deserve 
to have righteousness imputed. Two sides to the same coin that we call justification. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this portion of the Word of God, but we also pray, not just with regard to our thanks for it, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would make it very understandable for us and very real to us so that we could utilize what Paul is saying here and and gain a better understanding of our own salvation and not just that, so that we might be able to boldly and in a comfortable way and in love present the the good news regarding Jesus Christ and what he's done for us to those who are lost and on their way to a very bad place. Father, I pray that you would give us personal boldness in witnessing for Jesus Christ and help us to do it well and help us to do it as per the scriptures and not per some uh, tradition that might be extended in our culture. Now, Father, as we go our way, I pray that, the, that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.